Hey everyone, Chris Haddon here with HMB doing another awesome interview for entrepreneur.com. Very special guest we have on today. We have co-founder of Zinepack and Shark Tank contestant in the past, Brittany Hodak. Brittany, thank hey. you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. For sure. No, we definitely appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's a good chance that people who are watching or listening today are familiar with with you and your story, and we'll get into all the, the business stuff here very soon, but if you wouldn't mind, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, where you're from, school, all that stuff? Sure, so I grew up in a suburb of a town called Fort Smith, Arkansas, right on the state line in Oklahoma. Uh, went to college at a really great school called the University of Central Arkansas, which as the name suggests is kind of in the middle of the state of Arkansas. Uh, I graduated from there with a marketing degree and then moved to New York where I started working in the music business. Pretty much every job I've had um, ever my whole life has been in music starting when I was 16 and was a radio station mascot. And about six and a half years ago, uh, my co-founder Kim and I launched our company Zinepack, which is essentially a super fan marketing agency. We work with really awesome celebrities and brands and record companies to make cool stuff for their fans. Very cool, and we're definitely gonna dive into that um, idea of the super fan niche and company based around that. Um, we'll get more into that very soon because I find it to be very interesting, especially from a, a business standpoint. I think a lot of people can understand that from a personal perspective. Is that is that where you, how you got that kind of trajectory was being a fan and a radio station person and a music lover when you were young, when you were a teenager? Absolutely. So I was always what I would call now a super fan of several bands, right? Like I was the person who wanted to be in the front row. I wanted to meet the band. I wanted to get the set list or a drumstick or a guitar pick or something as a souvenir from the show. I just always sort of over-indexed in my affinity for specifically rock stars, but, but people across all, all different spectrums of entertainment. And had the idea for Zine Pack actually when I was in college. I was a college rep for one of the big music companies and there was a lot of talk about people not buying CDs anymore. This was in you know, 2003, 2004, so Napster is a huge story. Mm -hmm. iTunes is just coming on the scene and everybody was trying to figure out how are we gonna keep this physical music market, this market of selling CDs afloat. And as you know, a 20-year-old kid, to me the answer was obvious. It was, well, if you want people to buy music in a physical state, you've got to make it superior. Like, why is somebody going to want to own something physical that costs a lot of money and takes up space if it's not superior to something they can get online? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So I was thinking in this direction of merchifying music, taking what normally had just been a CD and turning it into a collector's item and pairing it with content that you couldn't get online. So all of a sudden now you had to go buy this thing and the fact that it had music was a great bonus if you wanted to own your music physically. But even if you didn't, you would want to buy this because there was exclusive editorial and cool photos and collectible merchandise all sort of packaged into one super fan package. So uh, that was actually the idea for Zine Pack. It took several years to then launch the company from there. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship when I was growing up. Uh, I grew up in the, in the shadow of Walmart about 
probably 50 miles from Bentonville. So I kind of thought that the way you did big things was to go work with big companies and to get big companies to like buy into your idea and you sort of work your way up the, the ladder in corporate America. Uh, so that's what I tried for several years. And it wasn't until I you know, was that frustrated person sort of like hitting their head on every rung, telling the people on the rungs on top of them, listen to me, this is a really good idea that I finally decided to give entrepreneurship a try. Okay, so the idea for Zinepack came when you were in college, but you had it on the shelf kind of for a while. Were you actually trying to make it happen while you were working other jobs in New York, or did you have it like completely on the side and it didn't get implemented until later? So I actually wrote the business plan for Zinepack in college. It was my undergraduate thesis, and I shared that project with several of my employers. Um, that was kind of, again, trying to make it work. I never thought about, this is a company I'm gonna go start. I thought, I'm going to convince a company that is in this space that this is a product that we should be selling. And it wasn't until I couldn't get that done that finally one day I was having a conversation with a buyer for, for Walmart, uh, who I had by that point been working with for five or six years in in the, the retail capacity, working for these big companies. Um, I was like, I, one of these days I'm gonna find somebody who's gonna believe in this idea and we're gonna get it going. And she was like, well, just start your own company. Like, I know you're the one driving this idea. You've been trying to get this going for years. I had done a couple different um, sort of like watered down versions of the idea, sort of as close as I could get to implementing them within the confines of the places I was working. She was like, just, you're never gonna be able to do your own thing until it's your own thing. Like people are gonna keep telling you no, people are gonna keep putting, you know, sort of the the brakes on on what you're doing, just to start your own company. And Kim, my co-founder, was with me at the agency. She also believed in the idea. She had a publishing background, which was super complimentary to my background of music. And so we decided, you know what, we've got as good a chance of making this work as anybody. We have, you know, <laughs> the biggest retailer in the world telling us that they're willing to take a chance on our idea. Yeah. Well, let's just hold on one second Brittany. we're having some connectivity issues Did we freeze? yeah we froze up a little bit just hold on for a second pass in a minute but no i got i definitely got the vast majority of that except for maybe the past few seconds yeah let's just hold tight for one minute and it should get back to normal no problem i blame that on your tennessee internet by the way i was saying you know i'm in the wi-fi castle of the world i actually only live a few miles away from the google fiber is so i'm hoping that they're going to extend that pretty soon Oh yeah, that would be awesome. Have the whole yeah. place be a hotspot. Okay, anything I can do besides just wait it out? No. Super. You can do what? You're gonna dance. I can do it. All right. Like a rain dance? Yeah. No. Hey, Kyle. <laughs> All right. So, are you guys seeing me slow? Because everything looks okay on this end. Um, it, it was totally perfect until just the last little spiel and it started freezing a little bit. But I think right now I think we're, we're okay. It's a little pixelated. Yeah, um, a little pixelated, but we're pretty much good. Okay. Yeah. 
Alright, so we're gonna pick up again. Um, I'll just ask a question, then we'll just keep rolling with that. Okay, great. Okay, so so you and Kim were together on the idea. You had the support of Walmart as your as your first big buyer client. Tell me a little bit about startup time, because that's always an interesting <laughs> point in time to any one of us who have been there, also to other people who could be watching or listening. What was what's your startup story? What what was everything like? So our startup story was really kind of the story of an accidental startup. Uh, we literally Googled, how do you start a company? I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. It went from, you know, that conversation with Walmart where we said, okay, maybe we can do this, to us quitting our job and starting a company in a matter of like 48 hours. 48 hours? Yeah. It was, Whoa. we had our first product on the shelves in about 10 weeks. Wow. Like on shelves in Walmart stores nationwide, <laughs> huh. so it was it was a very quick turnaround. And I'm assuming it was just you and Kim, just the two of you grinding it out, working out of your apartments. So we actually have a third partner who's amazing. Her name is Abby. She's our creative director, and she's been with us since day one. She and Kim worked together at the magazine uh, where Kim was before she joined the agency where she and I ultimately met, and she. She she really helped us early on sort of keep going. She wasn't in a position to quit her job and just say like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So she worked for us as a freelancer for the first couple of months. And then she went to three days a week at her job, two days a week with us. And then after about a year, she was like, okay, I'm gonna quit my job and just work for you guys full time. So we sort of like sucked her in over time. Uh, but she's she's been with us since day one and she's really like part of the magic that makes everything happen. That's great, that is great. And that's Abby, is it? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, her name is Abby Dowding. She's a designer and a creative director and she's, she's really fantastic. We've worked with her on literally every project we've ever done, which we've probably done close to 200 projects now. So um, it was funny, at the, at the beginning we said, you know, we can't pay you, like you're welcome to, right. you know, Kim and I were paying ourselves salaries of $1,000 a month for the first year. And then when we hit our one year birthday, we doubled our salaries to $2,000 each. So Abby was understandably not really interested in quitting like a full-time job with benefits to work for that illustrious salary. So it wasn't until we finally had a stable of steady projects and clients that we could offer her something comparable to what she was making in corporate America. And then she came over full-time. And then she came over full-time, yeah. And then it was still, I think, like a year after that before Kim and I were actually able to pay ourselves anywhere close to what to what we were paying Abby. So we always say, you know, there's kind of benefits to being um, a founder and there's benefits to being uh, a partner who kind of comes in more as an employee a little bit later on. Yeah, for sure. You know, that reminds me of something that I read that I believe you said that you and your partner had said to one another that financially, in the very near term, you needed to make more than what your salary was working for a bigger company. Mm-hmm. And that That's... is an interesting point because I think a lot of newer entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs get too wrapped up in the fact that they just want to do their own thing and run their own company, which is awesome, of course. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're making less than you can make working a, a, a normal job in an industry at a larger company and without all the risk, that's something people need to consider. And when you put that you put that goal out there right away, I think that was pretty sharp. 
Yeah, I mean, we kind of said we're going to give it a year and we're going to see if any year, if we can be close to a place where we would be at our jobs. And to be honest, it was several years before we were making the same salary. I was I was making a very high salary as a kid in my mid-20s. I mean, I was, I was like above 100 grand a year. So that was a pretty big chunk and it, it took a very long time before we came anywhere close to that. And there's still been several years where we haven't, where I haven't hit that and I've made less money. But you know, the, the amount of freedom that you get as being an entrepreneur, I've learned that there's, there's a value to that too. So we sort of learned over time, it's not just about the salary, it's about the fact that, you know, you're, you're being told you can only take 10 vacation days a year and you have to be in the office every day from 9am to 6pm. And, you know, you've got to work on projects that you hate. So we sort of learned over time, it's not just about that, you know, number that you're getting your gross pay number, it's all of the other things that sort of factor into quality of life. Absolutely. No, there definitely are many, many factors. And yeah, I mean, people, you know, are into different aspects of entrepreneurship and their their own niche. And that's cool. But I think that I've seen it more and more, especially in the era of zero revenue tech startups and all of that, where people just completely forget about the financial aspect. And at some point in time, you know the the economic reality of a business needs to be needs to be a focus. Um, hopefully, the entire time. So yeah, it's good to see that you did have that. Yeah, that's what I tell kids that are thinking about starting a business. With very few exceptions, if you have a company that's pre-revenue, you don't have a business. You have a hobby, and that hobby is keeping you from having a job and a career. So um, unless you have some sort of technology that's going to change the world, or some kind of business model that's going to convince people to invest you know, tens of millions of dollars in your company while you figure it out for several years, you got to kind of know what your business plan is when you hit the ground running and, and be successful. And for us, because we both had background working in an entertainment agency, we understood the agency model, the model of, okay, somebody's going to hire me for this project. I'm going to charge them what my costs are plus X, and that X is going to be my profit. So we were able from day one to say, we're only going to take on projects that are, that are profitable. Like we're not going to put ourselves in a position to lose money. And even to this day, we turn down probably 40% of the projects that come our way, maybe a little more than 40% of the projects that come our way. And um, either because we feel like there's not a need in the market for what it is somebody wants to hire us to do, or because it's a project that we just feel like there's a potential that either us or the client will lose money on. And even if we make money on a project, but our client loses money or breaks even, that's not a great experience. And then that's a client who's not gonna wanna work with us again because they put in all this work and they haven't made money. So we really try to think about, you know, every step in the, every step in the ladder and whether or not this is something that is going to you know, make the world better or be something that the world is sort of waiting for. Like it's, you know, we, we launch 75 new products a year and hmm. does the world need all 75 of those products? You know, maybe, maybe not. Like if you talk to some of these super fans of some of these properties, absolutely. They're like chomping at the bit waiting to get new stuff. Um, but the reality is we could launch a lot more products a year if we were willing to sort of say, eh, let's like throw some spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. But we try to be much more strategic about that and only take on projects that we know are going to be very well received by like a hardcore psychographic of fans. Gotcha. Psychographic. Good word. Um, and we're going to get into that in, in just a minute here. But let, let's talk a little bit more about the model there. Um, so what would be your ideal client, like your avatar? Here's 
an artist or whoever it may be. I know that's one of your focuses, not the only one. And all the way down the line, what what is the best kind of thing we can deliver for them and for the fans who's the end user? Walk us through that a little bit because your model is somewhat unique in that regard. So probably my favorite thing about Zine Pack is that every project is a little bit different. So Kim and Abby and I, along with our team, are all very creative people and we are people who like to work on new and different things. We don't want to do the same thing 30 different times. We want to do 30 different things. And the Zine Pack model really gives us the ability to do that because if we're working on 10 projects at a time, those 10 projects could be for 10 completely different companies or completely different artists. I mean, we're working with rappers and at the same time we're working with gospel groups and we're working with country stars and we're working with cruise lines and we're working with movie studios. So there's a little bit of everything. So the reason I talk a lot about the psychographic of super fandom is because the demographic of who we're working with is completely different, right? We, um, we just did a really cool project for Sean Mendez. We created a passport for his world tour that has a lot of original content in it. It's got some collectible, collectible guitar picks in it, but it also has augmented reality prompts in it. So you can get this really cool AR content through an app called Fancy just by having this passport, right? So that's obviously a very different demo than when we're working with Dolly Parton to help her sort of reimagine some of her catalog on vinyl. So we like to think about the psychographic of super fandom because that's sort of, that's like the middle of our Venn diagram, right? Like if you have all the different circles of the different types of genres that we work with or ages of fans that we work with or verticals of entertainment that we work with, super fandom is kind of where everything comes together in the middle. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a sports team or a restaurant chain or a CPG brand, you are going to have people who are super fans of what you do, right? Like they have that increased affinity and will only consume whatever it is that you're producing. Like for instance, me, I'm a super fan of a lot of things. I'm a huge super fan of Dr. Pepper, right? Like, I love, love, love Dr. Pepper. All of my best memories growing up as a kid involved Dr. Pepper. I literally will drink water if there's not Dr. Pepper. Like, I'm one of those people who when I go to the restaurant and they're like, oh, we have Mr. Pibb. I'm like, mm, give me a water, because it's not the same, right? It's like not worth the calories if it's not really Dr. Pepper. Um, some people don't feel that way. Some people feel that way about Coke. Some people feel that way about Pepsi. But for every brand, there's a small amount of your customers that really loves you and you're part of their life, right? Like without even trying, without even consciously knowing it perhaps, those people have sort of self-selected in and said your brand is a part of my life. It's a part of my story. It's a part of who I am. And those are the people who not only are gonna be natural influencers for your brand because they're gonna talk about it just because they love it, but they're also going to spend a lot more money on your brand over the course of their lifetime, right? In the music space, that means they're gonna to come to more concerts. They're gonna buy more merchandise when they're there. They're gonna spend more money every time you put an album out. They're gonna to wanna to buy that like upper level of VIP package. Um, on a sports team, it's the same thing, right? These are your season ticket holders. These are the people who are spending a lot of money on merchandise. These are the people who wanna to pay to meet the players. So what we get to do and why what we do is so fun is we get to make stuff for those people. Those people that we lovingly call like the crazies, like we get to say, okay, what is it that is going to make you so excited about whatever thing you love 
that you're going to want to go out and not only buy our product, but tell like every person in the world you know about our product. And that's what we get to do every single day for our clients, which is why it's so much fun. It's a really, really interesting model. Um, because if you look at something like music or sports, you know, some of the most popular things in the world, yet the people that you are targeting are just a small little sliver of those things. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to brain wrap at first. And I'm sure that was the case for um, potential investors. Um, of course, when you first got in front of investors for the first time, you already had a good thing going, right? You already had a good amount of business on the Walmart deal. Yeah, and you know, so we're six and a half years into our business. We're still entirely self-funded. So Kim and I put in some money at the at the onset to get the company going, mm-hmm. and that was the only capital. Um, we have you know our lines of credit and um, some of our other business funding that's guaranteed personally by the two of us. But we've never accepted any outside money. Uh, we appeared on Shark Tank. And that was a really cool experience and has proven to be a continued really great marketing driver. Like every single time it it reruns on CNBC, we get calls from people and it it airs in syndication all over the world. So we get these really fascinating emails from people all over the world who've seen it, you know, air in like Russia and South Africa and Australia. Um, But we didn't end up doing the deal that we were offered on the show after the show aired. So we still own 100% of the equity, which is really great because it means that we have 100% say of what we do. And one of the one of the reasons that we've chosen not to take on any investor money up to this point is because a lot of people, as you said, can't wrap their head around us turning down so much work. And especially because a lot of the stuff we do doesn't even have our name on it. Like we work on a ton of projects that are essentially white labeled, right? Like no consumer is ever going to know we had anything to do with it. Um, it's not going to be on our website. We're not going to be posting about it on our socials. It's just going to be a really cool product that exists out there in the world. And for us, that's that's totally fine. Like we're a B2B company. The people who need to know that we're doing cool stuff know we're doing cool stuff. And if a fan never knows that we're the ones who created this really amazing commemorative ticket that they're keeping or a really cool subscription box that they're getting in the mail every month, that's fine with us. Because again, we're not trying to be like a household name um, because we're not targeting the same demographic of people over and over again, if that makes sense. Like if we sell 2 million things in a year, it's very possible that that's to like 1.4 million people, you know, like, and then the next year, if we sell another 2 million things, it might be to like 1.6 million more people with only like a little tiny overlap. Um, and that's totally fine with us because as I said, we're launching a lot of different products that don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense that your focus is on, is on your clients, meaning the performers, athletes, people like that and also on your end users too, and not necessarily about your agency. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so where do you see everything going with your team, revenue products, whatever it may be in the next, call it three to five years? It's a great question. So about two years ago, Kim and I sat down and made the difficult decision to decrease the size of our team. Um, because we had gotten to the point where our overhead was just staggering. 
it was close to $100,000 a month between salaries, rent, insurance, and all the other things that you sort of have to hit before Kim and I would ever see a dollar. So we were to the point of having to take on some of these projects that we didn't want to do and having to charge a higher margin than we wanted to to some of the clients that we had for a long time just to kind of keep the lights on. And we said, this isn't fun anymore. Like we're, we feel like we're on hamster wheels. We're constantly having to be in biz dev mode. Kim and I are the only ones who are bringing in new projects for the company. So it just, it wasn't fun. So we sat down with our team and we said, we're eliminating five positions. We were 10 at the time. And we said, we're gonna, we're gonna take the, the team size down to five. And here are the reasons we're doing it. And everyone, we're gonna pay you until you find a job somewhere else. We're gonna help you find a job somewhere else. Hmm. Um, but you know, your job at Zinepack is going away. And we had been told by a ton of people that it's really, really hard to have an agency that's in that like 10 to 30 person space. You kind of either have to be a small agency or you have to be a big agency and you have to decide what you want to be. Um, so we were at the point where we said we have to decide if we want to grow to a 30 person agency and drop, you know, six figure salaries on a lot of people to come in to help us, help us with sales and marketing and um, HR and some of these other things that just aren't really fun or if we're going to take this back down to something more manageable that we can do ourselves. So we reduced the size of our staff to from 10 to 5 um, but and that was at the beginning of it was the beginning of 2016 yeah so it's been like a year and a half. Um, we ended up doing more projects than we had ever done making more revenue than we had ever made and being more profitable than we had ever been by cutting our team size in half. And that wasn't something we were expecting to happen right away. We thought we would get there eventually, but we didn't know we would get there in the first year. And for us, that was a really great lesson of, you know, A, we didn't know how much time we were spending, as they would say in Emith, working in our business instead of on our business, because we were spending a lot of time sort of managing all of the personalities and, um, the team that needed help with, you know, a lot of things um, because we, we got rid of a lot of like lower level staff, staff and kept like our, our VP and director level team members. And so just doing that freed up so much more time for Kim and I to go after projects that we were able to really, you know, I don't want to say turn the business around because it's not like we were ever not profitable because we, we have always been profitable. Um, but we were really able to get back to the place of being able to take on fewer projects that allowed us to be more creative and a little bit more innovative than we had been in the past. Instead of just like, it felt like there for a while we were an idea factory and we had to just like, keep cranking things out and saying yes to new things in order to meet the huge overhead requirements we had every month. Gotcha. Yeah, I was making a couple notes there, so I'm going to touch on a couple points because you did hit some really good stuff. Um, okay, so the main motivation for trimming back your overhead and your people and everything else was basically because you didn't want to take on work that you didn't want to take on. Yeah, I mean, really, it was like a quality of life thing. When Kim and I started the company, our business plan was four words. It said, number one, make money. Number two, have fun. And <laughs> we weren't having fun. And even though our top line revenue was a lot, we weren't making money. I mean, Kim and I, I think the year before 2015, we made less money than every single staffer on our team because there were times where there was there was enough money for everybody else's payroll but not for us and we were personally leveraged against a line of credit 
and that was scary. We had a client really screw us over, um, somebody who there's pending litigation with right now, who essentially just decided they weren't gonna pay us and a lot of other people. Um, they ripped off people to the tune of like several million dollars, but we got caught up in it. Um, so that was like a hard loss there of tens of thousands of dollars, um, which is again, we were like maybe had we been paying more attention, if our staff wasn't so big, like we would have seen some of these red flags. But because we had grown to the point where we were sort of just saying like, oh yeah, that sounds good, that looks good, we said yes to this project, which then ended up being, you know, like a huge problem um, that we are, you know, I don't know how much of that money we're ever gonna recoup of any, but certainly, you know, not all of it. So yeah, for us, it was, it was really like a quality of life thing of we want to be only saying yes to things we want to do and we want to like have time to spend with our friends and our family and not feel like we have to do biz dev for 80 hours a week to keep the lights on. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, same thing in personal life and your your business. Keeping the budget in checks a, a huge thing. Yeah. Quality of life is a big part of that for sure. And also just a workload, like having that kind of you know, go on autopilot and not autopilot, it's probably the opposite of autopilot where you have to run every little thing yet it's kind of spinning out of control a little bit and then you need to get bigger but then you don't want to decrease quality and then things fall through the crack. All that stuff is growing pains, right? Yeah, it was really kind of, like you said, asking ourselves the question of who did we want to be? And we said, we don't want to be a big agency. We don't want to have 30 employees and be doing $25 million of revenue in a few years. Like running a 30 person agency doesn't sound like fun. Like that's not something Kim and I want to do. We would much rather have a really small boutique agency with the reputation of doing really cool stuff that we know that people are gonna to come to us with their cool projects. And that our clients know that if they come to us with a really cool project and say, you know, I have this idea, but it's gonna be really tough to figure out how to execute it and I only have five weeks, we'll be able to say, okay, great, we can jump in and help you do it. Because before, there was no me and Kim being able to jump in to help with anything because we were out there chasing the next client. Versus now, we have this really nice mix of being able to you know, look for new business that makes sense for us, but more importantly, get to sort of super serve the clients that we have and make sure that we're doing really cool stuff for, for our clients, which is the fun part. You know, Like I said, it goes back to that business plan. We wanna make money, but we also wanna have fun, and we just weren't having any fun when, when the company was double its size. I hear you, I hear you. Okay, one other thing I wanted to touch on. You, you mentioned the e-myth, which a lot of business owners would be very familiar with, been around for a long time, great book about business, and one of the main concepts in it is the idea of working in your business versus on your business, which you touched mm-hmm. on. And we have a similar term for it, how we, how Jason and I and some of our other business partners structure our productivity. We have what we call transactional work, mm-hmm. which is just you know the necessary evil of doing the job part of your business. Like we all have a business, but we have a job too for the most part. Right. Um, and we try to split it about in half between the transactional work and doing the business owner stuff, which is typically making something either bigger or making it better. Mm-hmm. Um, the marketing related stuff, training people, finance related things, versus just like the block and tackle that we have to do transactionally right. in our lending company and our real estate company and the other stuff we do. Um, what is your split like between this is my job and this is me running a business? Gosh, that's a really good question. I would say it probably changes. 50-50 is, is probably a really great model to shoot for. Um, in some months, it's probably that. And 
you know, honestly, there's some weeks where if we're really like heads down in a project, it might be like 90, 10 in right. versus on. And then right. we can sort of make up for it three weeks later when we're sort of, you know, done with that project and, and get it back up to closer to that 50, 50. And, you know, I didn't realize before what a luxury that was to be able to, I don't want to say pick and choose because it's, it's certainly more, you know, of a science than picking and choosing as you know, and other business owners will know. Um, but it's really great to sort of have the freedom to say, for instance, if a project comes on that I'm just a huge fan personally of, I'm going to be involved with that. Uh, I mentioned Dolly Parton before. She's somebody who has been an idol of mine for my entire life. So um, when we were lucky enough to get to work with Dolly for the first time, I said, I'm going to be the one interviewing Dolly. I'm going to write all of the content for this project. Like, this is my thing. And that was something that a year and a half ago I never would have been able to do. Um, so it's great to be able to sort of jump in and say, you know, we're going to be super duper involved with the things we care about because at the core, like that's why we started the company. Kim and I are super fans of so many things. So to have the ability to sort of pursue from a biz dev standpoint, the people that you love and admire and want to work with. And then once you land it, not to have to just like hand it off and say, okay, what's up next? But to be able to actually be like intimately involved in the creation and the project management of that is something really great that, you know, we kind of like didn't know how precious it was until we grew to the point where we couldn't do that anymore and we missed it so much that we wanted to go back. Because again, for the first two years of the company, it was just me, Kim and Abby. So we were doing a couple million dollars of revenue a year with just the three of us. And then we ballooned from three to ultimately 10 and then now back down to five. And five is definitely a much more comfortable size, sort of like the right size for us. And I tell people now, like don't focus on being the biggest business you can be, focus on being the right size business for you. And maybe that's big, but maybe that's small and that's okay too. Yeah, no, I've definitely experienced some of that stuff myself. We've gotten to the size that we want to be in the past couple of years and we're consciously kind of keeping it here. And we're maybe like 10 or 12 and it's cool. And, and we do our thing and it's comfortable and it's lean and all of that, but I've definitely experienced that as well. Um, okay, so backing up for one sec, I wanted to touch on a couple things related to your partnership uh, with Kim and with Abby, the different roles you have, uh, skill sets, personalities, how you guys jive together. Break that down for me a little bit if you could. Yeah. So first of all, I say I think it's so much easier with three than two because there's never a tie, right? Um, and more often than not, it's it's unanimous. But when it's not unanimous, there's always a majority. So that sort of makes it easy. Um, with Abby, it's very it's very simple because she is a designer, right? So she has a completely different skill set than Kim and I have. So that's been a clear delineation from day one. Mm -hmm. And with Kim, it's been honestly, it's been like a learning process, right? Because for the first two years, we never really thought about how we were dividing and conquering anything because things happened so quickly for us. It was, I'm doing whatever you're not doing and vice versa. I'm like, let's keep praying that we're not going to drop any of these balls that we're like tossing back and forth to each other. So it wasn't until the team started to grow that we really started to figure out what we were both sort of uniquely good at and what we both really enjoyed. And that's really sort of how we decided to um, divide and conquer the the different responsibilities. So um, there's a lot that we sort of split up. Like I love, I love tech and I love marketing. So I handle a lot of that. Like I'm the one who's always um, deciding which 
services we're going to use and how we're going to implement, you know, sort of company facing stuff. And Kim totally takes my lead on that. And she trusts me because she knows she doesn't have time to like test 15 different software programs to figure out which one is going to work best for us. And she takes the lead on the legal and finance stuff. And the same thing, like I'm, if she tells me we need to do something, I'm not going to, you know, ask her a million questions because I trust that she's made the right decision because she's very uniquely good at those things. So um, it was sort of like figuring out over time what we both really like to do and also what we both hated to do. Like Kim hates technology. I hate finance. So we, <laughs> we sort of like lucked into a really great partnership in a lot of ways. So it sounds like you two overlap a lot on, on the core of your business like what your company does and the creative and the clients and everything else you're, you're you see eye to eye on that but then some of the other business owner things like all the stuff that you don't realize you're going to have to do when you start a company that's where you split it up is that about that's right split it up and all, well really on the projects it's we sort of overlap in the um core you know business of what it is that we do and our and our plans and our vision but not so much on the individual projects like it'll always either be I'm taking the lead on a project or she's taking the lead on the project so that's another way we really split it up and that's usually based on how it comes in so I'm a huge country music fan uh, I moved from Manhattan to Nashville about eight months ago uh, in part because I was tired of living in New York City but also in part because we had a huge amount of business here so I am the lead on all of our country music projects and she's the lead on a lot of our live event and ticketing projects. So that's a really great way to sort of split it up. And I can always say to her, hey, that, that thing you just did with Paul McCartney, like that was really cool. Tell me a little bit more about that so I can tell other people about it. Um, in the same way, she'll come to me and say, hey, that was really cool what you just did with the Country Music Association or the Grand Ole Opry. Like, what were the details of that? And then that way we're sort of like learning from each other and helping each other come up with really cool ideas. But we're sort of on our own in terms of the projects that we're like going after and then attacking from a creative standpoint. Hmm. Got it. It sounds very much like one plus one equals three with you guys. <laughs> that's what we try to do. Yeah, that's that's what we totally. strive for. And again, I can't emphasize how much easier that is with a small team than it was with a big team because there was a lot more sort of not butting heads because we've we've always gotten along really well, but a lot of like, oh, you're doing this. I thought I was doing this. Are we both doing this? When we had so many more people on the team, because it was a lot of the like, well, I'm going to ask mom, but if I don't like the answer from mom, I'm going to ask dad. Or if I don't hear from mom in the first five minutes, I'm going to go ask dad with some of the people on our team. And so then we were like double working because we didn't know that people were coming to both of us asking both of us for, for help or time or input. And then they would like come back to us and say, well, that's not what Kim said, or well, that's not what Brittany said. So again, it was so much simpler to sort of work not only on the business, but also in the business, like once the business got a little smaller. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's keep going with that because I think some of the operator type of discussion is a, a big value to the people watching, especially who the ones who aren't uh, running their own company quite yet, but they're going to come across this real life, like nitty gritty operator type stuff very soon. Um, and, and it's never a straight road. You know, this stuff pops up all the time, every week, every month. You don't really anticipate and how you deal with it is going to, you know, a lot of the success of the company is going to be based on you and things that you don't plan to do. Mm -hmm. um, so that being the case, what's, what would you say is one thing about yourself, a skill that you could, imp if you could, you would improve that one right away. What's the number one skill you would improve about yourself? 
Man, what a great question. Um, I probably am a lot harder on myself than I need to be in terms of like perfectionist tendencies. And you know, the saying like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, that's definitely me. And I think it's because I have, I have a writer background and I always want everything to be sort of as close to perfect as it can be. And um, a lot of times that's, I think, maybe to my own detriment. Uh, I could definitely be sending out like more pitches or more proposals if I wasn't so focused on trying to make everything like exactly right with the ones I was working on. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a common one <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, perfectionism and entrepreneurship don't normally jive too well. Um, so juggling both is a challenge for a lot of people. Okay, um, the opposite side of that question. What would you say makes you good at what you do? I would say I, I trust my instincts just innately. And I'm, I'm a very instinctive person. Like the day I met my husband, I was like, that's the guy I'm gonna marry. And then I like made a plan to make him fall in love with me and marry me. Like he didn't know me. We lived in totally different places, different states. I knew literally nothing about him other than like I had a meeting with him and I was like, whoa, I'm gonna marry that guy. Um, and I've done several other very impulsive things. The house that I live in now, I, I just saw it and was like, I'm gonna buy this house without you know my husband seeing it or anything else, like put an offer in. Um, actually, didn't I didn't know Kim that well when I asked her if she wanted to start Zine Pack together. We'd known each other for like a week. Um, so I think that a lot of people think that's sort of like nutty, but to me, intuition is like the most important thing you can have, right? Like trusting your intuition, I think, is more important in a lot of circumstances than trusting even like research or advice, right? Because I think a lot of people are scared to admit the fact that a lot of times we really deep down know the answers to things we think we don't know the answer to. Like when you say, oh, I don't know what to do, or oh, I'm not sure what I should do, I think a lot of times people know and they're just sort of like scared to go with what their gut is telling them. So I am a huge, huge believer in trusting your gut. And you know what, if it doesn't work, at least you're not gonna be second guessing yourself, right? Like you're not gonna say, ah, oh, I wish that I had gone with my, with my gut. And I can't really think of an instance where I followed my gut and things didn't work out, but I can definitely think of a lot of times where I went with sort of the logical thing instead of what my heart was telling me and regretted it later. Mm, intuition versus impulsivity. Like pe people think you're just acting on impulses but you have a good feeling about it and the fact that you can't remember a time where your intuition led you wrong is a, that's a great track record, I have to say. Well, you're so right, like they're different. And I think I think people sometimes will say, oh, you're being really impulsive, but it's it's not, it's not impulsive, it's, it's intuitive. And there is, there's like a very clear difference between those two. And I think um, people don't appreciate and act on their intuition as much as they should oftentimes because they're afraid in some instances of being seen as being impulsive. Yeah, for sure. And just as important as that intuition is the fact that you take action on it. As, as you mentioned with your husband and your house and your job. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's worked out really well. Like, I have an amazing husband, a fantastic business with a wonderful business partner, and a house that I love. Like, it's, it's great. So far, so good, right? It's working. Um, okay. The idea of luck, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, is something that, that business owners talk about a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, everyone works hard and they make stuff happen, they have skill set, but most people would say they've had a few lucky things happen along the way. Do you have any stories like that? One or two things 
that has happened to you so far in business so you're like damn that was just lucky you know Shark Tank Shark Tank is something that we were very lucky um, we didn't apply to be on the show I never in a million years would have thought to apply to be on Shark Tank because you know we're essentially a marketing agency but I got a call from a producer one day who said hey you know, have you heard of the show Shark Tank? And I said, you know, of course I have, and I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and I live in America. And he was like, great, we think you should be on it. Um, wow. So if you want to be on the show, like come be on the show. And so we did it. Um, I was a huge fan of the show. Like I watched it every single week with my husband. Kim had never seen it. She'd never seen an episode of Shark Tank. And I was like, there's the show, we should do it. And we did. And it's been such a great little biz dev thing for us. Um, when we were on the show, we said that we were looking to expand beyond music into professional sports. And, you know, that was true. We were. But we had a couple of sports things that we were doing. And we just, we, we've always been very fortunate to have a lot of referral business and a lot of inbound. So we weren't really pursuing it as much as we needed to. Um, so we sort of said it on the show because it sounded like a legitimate reason for being there to ask for money. But we immediately started getting calls from C-level executives at basically teams in every league. I mean, at this point, we've we've worked with teams in every single league. Um, we worked with you know college teams in addition to professional teams. And every single time it re-airs, we get really interesting people who reach out to us. So it's kind of like a third biz dev person out there who's just like constantly getting very well qualified leads for us because by the time somebody reaches out from seeing an, a repeat of Shark Tank they've already watched like an eight minute commercial about our company basically like they already know everything about us so we get to spend our time doing discovery about you know their business and their unique marketing needs and their fans and so it's it's turned into like a really great little biz dev tool and that was complete luck. Yeah, totally. Uh, just out of curiosity, how did they come across your company and end up reaching out to you? So, you know, so interesting that you asked that because I think the flip side of that is a lot of people will tell you like you make your own luck and I am absolutely a believer in that. And something that I have told people from day one that's worked really well for us is sort of this idea of like trading up with press. Like say yes to every podcast, say yes to every blog interview because that's going to help you get those bigger stories, right? Like you can't just on your first day as an entrepreneur, in most instances, roll up to like CNN and be like, yo, put me on the air. Like you've got to sort of like establish a track record. So we had, you know, done a lot of great little things that helped us get on the Inc. 30 under 30 list. Oh. And, you know, we wouldn't have been on that list had Donna Fenn, the woman who curates the list, seen us in like a lot of other things, a lot of smaller things. So the year we were on the list, it was it was actually 35 under 35 that year because it was Inc's 35th anniversary. And so of the 35 companies, we were the only one that was self-funded. And the Uber guys were on the list that year. A bunch of other tech companies were on the list who had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So there was this really funny chart that showed how much money everyone had raised. And at the top end, it was like $350 million. And then at the low end, it was like $4 million. And then we had an asterisk and it said bootstrapped. And the guy saw that, the producer saw that, and he, it made him laugh. He thought it was funny. And he was like, who are these people who are on this list who haven't raised any money? And so he looked us up. He thought our company was pretty cool. And he was like, I'm going to reach out to them to see if maybe they're bootstrapped because they just you know haven't found an investor. And if so, maybe they'd want to come on the show. So that was, we never would have been on Shark Tank if we weren't on the Inc. 35 under 35 list. And we never would have been on the list had we not 
decided that we wanted to be on that list, like it was an important thing for us, and thinking about what strategically we could do to improve our chances to get on that list, knowing that our competition was, you know, Uber and other gigantic businesses. Yeah, no, that that's a great one. In addition to being um, on that, you know, very influential sort of list with big players and being bootstrapped, you were way under 35 at the time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I actually I got very lucky because I had turned 30 that year, so I was afraid I wasn't going to make it on the list. I was like, I'm sort of over the hill now. I've like peaked, and they made it 35 under 35. So that was Perfect. I like just squeaked in on that one. <laughs> very good stuff. No, definitely, definitely enjoyed all of that. And for the people who are watching and listening today, where can people check you out? Where can they reach out to you, see your stuff? So our website is zinepack.com, Z-I-N-E-P-A-K.com, and I'm Brittany Hodak. Um, you can find me at Brittany Hodak on basically every social media platform, and I'd be excited to connect with people and trade entrepreneur stories, and especially super fan stories. Like, I want to know what else people geek out on. Super fan stories. I'm going to make a note of that, too, because I'm sure I can come up with one or two. But Do you know what a super fan I am? I am such a super fan, and my husband's such a super fan. We had the coach of the Michigan football team, Jim Harbaugh, do our baby gender reveal for us. My husband was like, I don't want to know what the baby is unless Jim Harbaugh will like tell us. So we sent the envelope to his office in Ann Arbor and said, like, will you please tell us if we're having a boy or a girl? And he did. He sent back this amazing note that was like the coolest thing in the world and let us know we were having a baby boy. But like that's the level of super fandom that is sort of in my DNA and my husband's DNA, which means like God help this baby inside of me. Like it's going to be the biggest super fan in the world wow. of a lot of things, especially right. Michigan football. You guys are super fans. No wonder you understand your customer so well. Is that you? You know, basically invented the whole thing. <laughs> you definitely have to like have that psychographic trait, I think, in order to uh, to super serve this audience. Seriously. Well, it sounds like you are doing a great job of it, and we oh, definitely wish you all the success in the world. We appreciate you coming by. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Okay, Brittany, have a good day. Talk thanks to you later. Too. Talk Thank soon. you. Bye. Take care.